Indeed, he shall raise us from the dust. Jesus is our hope and trust. I hope that you can say those words. I wonder if you can say those words. I wonder if you have the confidence. I wonder if you have the assurance. He shall raise me from the dust. Well, friends, as we worship God, we come to recognize that the only way our life for all eternity can be secure and safe is if we place our trust, our hope, our confidence for our entire lives on Jesus. This morning, as we continue our sermon series to the book of 2 Samuel, we get to see that the journey to respond appropriately to God's promised king is a journey filled with complications and a lot of messiness. When things get difficult or dicey with multiple areas that are hard, difficult, it's common to hear people say, it's complicated. Or people might say, and you ask them, how is it going? And uh, they put a summary statement, it's messy. If it gets really tight, they'll say it's complicated and messy. It's an indication that things are not going well, that things have turned sour, and sorting out what is right or what is wrong is difficult. Our lives and circumstances often fit these descriptions, circumstances that are difficult and messy, relationships with ha- we have with others that often fit these descriptions. Can you scan your life right now? Just do a scan of your life, quick, in your mind. Or scan your relationships and see if there are some that fit this description. Complicated and messy. I certainly have a few items on my radar, in my mind, in my life, that I can put these tags on them. Complicated and messy. Uh, These things, I just want to assure, uh, are not about any of you here this morning. Nor about my wife, who is not present this morning, since she's away. So I just want to assure you, it's not about you or the family. But we have circumstances or relationships in our lives that could very well fit this description, complicated and messy. When we come to the Bible, we hit passages in Scripture where the life of the kingdom that God wanted to unfold over His people could well be described by these two adjectives, complicated and messy. It's complicated and messy because there are sinful ways in each of the characters through whom the Lord is working. And in the passage we're about to look at this morning, we will see a chapter, a season in the life of the unfolding of the kingdom of God in which the life of the kingdom is presented in, its, in very raw 
and unfiltered ways. And even the major characters in the story have some, some details about them that are complicated and messy. And these adjectives could describe every one of the characters that we will be looking at this morning. David, Abner, and Joab. Three major characters in the story that we will be looking at in 2 Samuel chapter 3 that could receive these adjectives, complicated and messy. And we're going to try to understand what is the Lord trying to teach us through the unfolding of this raw episode in the history of his kingdom being ushered in among us. Would you open God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 3? It's a long chapter. I'll be reading from verse 1 to, to verse 39. Here is God's Word for us. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David a Hebron, his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam, of Jezreel, and his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal, of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Ritzpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and I have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word, because he, he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I pay the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. And Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, for some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now, then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, 
By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. And Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know your going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. Then David, but David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner, because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and went at the gate, at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people went, wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. 
These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearts as we hear? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. A word that is complicated. A word that reveals to us how messy life is, even among your people. Father, we pray and I ask that you would help me proclaim this word and what you intend to, to teach us through it. And I ask, Father, that you would help us hear it. For the glory of Christ, we pray. And in his name, amen. After reading this chapter, perhaps you agree with me. It's complicated and messy. We see the unfolding of the life of the kingdom among God's people in the Old Testament here. And while we are introduced to many characters in the story, the three main characters all show up with some surprises and unexpected turns. The life of the kingdom in this chapter is often life in conflict. This is how the chapter started, with a summary statement that there was a long war between the two dynasties of God's people. The old dynasty that God had rejected back in the first book of 1 Samuel, the dynasty of the house of Saul, and then the new dynasty, the, the house of David that God promised to build up. In this season of internal conflict, a conflict within the people of God, we are surprised by unexpected, unexpected turns and surprising developments. Life in the kingdom is complicated and messy, but God is carrying out his purposes through flawed characters. That's the message that this chapter is giving us. Life, is, uh, life in the kingdom of God is complicated and messy, but God is carrying out his purposes through flawed characters. Three scenes in this chapter uh, make the, the whole of, of this chapter, each focusing on one of the major characters. The first scene, while all the characters are involved in various ways, the first scene focuses on David, the second on Abner, and the third on Joab and David. The first scene, we see David's house increases despite opposition. David's house increases despite opposition. Uh, God had promised a throne over his people to David. But Saul's house did not let go of the reign that easily, even after Saul passed away. Notice how verse 1 begins the story. There was a long war. And it's important to know that this long war was not between Israel and the Philistines. The long war was between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. By this comment, we see that Saul's family kept the conflict that Saul started. The house of Saul would not embrace God's plans for the people of God. They kept fighting against God's chosen king even Saul, after Saul was dead. 
But even though they kept the conflict going and the war was alive for a long time, the Lord was making David's house stronger and caused Saul's house to grow weaker. This comment is repeated again in verse 6. But there's a surprising detail about David's house. In verses 2 to 5, we see a list of sons that were born to David in Hebron. This was a sign that David's line will be well supplied. His dynasty was growing. But there is a sticky and messy detail. And we readers pick that up quickly. Each of the six sons that were born to David were born from different wives. Ouch. This is a messy detail. Not only for our ears today, but even for the Old Testament people of God. Now, it's true that polygamy was a cultural norm in ancient times, but it was not God's intention and design at the beginning. Remember how God defined uh, marriage in the very first marriage in the book of Genesis chapter 2. God said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus quotes Genesis 2 in Matthew chapter 19, and he brings this conclusion in chapter 19, verse 6. Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one. God's intention with marriage from the beginning was for marriage to be made up of two people, of a man and a woman. But as we often see in the Old Testament, even the major characters of the Bible have often reflected the cultural norms of the cultural times around them rather than pursue and follow and live out God's design for marriage. When we see that happening, it should not be viewed and interpreted as an endorsement of polygamy or of, of these unnatural relationships. It simply is a reflection that even the people of God throughout the Old Testament times have often times uh, lived with the messiness of the culture around them in their own lives and families. Not only was God's design for one man and one woman to be in marriage together, but God gave very clear instructions in His Word to the kings about how they should consider their marriage relationship. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, God said this about kings. He shall not acquire many wives for himself. So this list of David's growing number of sons is darkened by the number of his wives. David's plan for growing his family did not follow God's instruction. It's a lesson for us to realize that sometimes without realizing, we allow the norms of the culture around us to to reflect our lives, and we become deaf, we become desensitized to what God says in His Word about how He wants us to build our lives and our families. 
the narrator is including this detail here not to endorse what David did, but simply to show that he is not glossing over messy details even in the lives of the heroes of the faith. And this, is, this shows that the, the Bible's honesty not to hide the sins of God's people. We're starting to see blemishes in David in this chapter. And it's not the only one that we will see here. Just because God did not punish David here does not mean that God was okay with David's decision. The list of six sons from six different wives may seem like a sign of strength to the culture of David's time. But the rest of this book will tell a different story of the six sons listed here in this list. Three of them will bring David incredible pain. Amnon, the first one, will rape his half-sister. Absalom will kill Amnon in return. And Absalom will seek David's throne. At the end of David's life, Adonijah will seek to take David's throne against David's advice. Just read the rest of the story, and you will see this list of six sons. While they seemed, to the cultural eyes, look, David's dynasty is growing, it was not according to God's design. And even though David doesn't pay for it now, the effects of these decisions will be developing and become clear in due course later. Friends, even our heroes of faith will let us down and disappoint us. The history of God's people is not a history of perfect people. It's a history of messy people. Some had incredible qualities. Uh, we can read biographies of the hero heroes of the faith, not just in the Bible, but also people who have lived uh, in the history of the last 2,000 years. Biographies will reveal, however, that not only the heroes of the faith had wonderful qualities about them, but also had areas where they were wrong and blew it big time. But the lesson for us is to learn not to dismiss them altogether simply because we see blemishes in them. Ask yourself, do you tend to dismiss other Christians simply because they show their human blemishes? Be careful that we don't adopt an idealistic expectation that no one can fulfill except Jesus. Don't let the blemishes of God's people be an excuse for you to give up on God or on His plans. Friends, the beginning of this chapter just actually confronts us with David's blemishes. Despite the opposition, despite the shortcomings, God is working mysteriously through opposition and through blemishes. He is building up His reign even through imperfect people. Yet, despite David's blemishes here, God is carrying out His plan to make the house of David stronger. And this leads us to the second scene in this chapter. The second scene is... A the scene of a powerful opponent changing his loyalty. A powerful opponent changes his loyalty. We see this from verse 6 all the way to verse 21. 
From chapter, from verse 6, the story focuses on Abner. He's the commander of Saul's armies. He's the one who installed Ishbosheth, Saul's son, to be the alternate king over the northern tribes of Israel, in opposition to the tribes of Judah who had embraced David as king. In this section, we see Abner change his loyalty away from the house of Saul and changes his loyalty to the house of David. How did this take place? Well, we're told that a conflict arose between Abner and Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, the king, accused Abner of crossing the line by having relations with one of Saul's concubines. Oh, so, so Saul too had multiple relationships. Here's another messy little detail. The king accuses Abner of, of having an, an unrighteous relationship with uh, one of uh, Saul's concubines, and Abner makes it clear that Ishbosheth crossed the line to bring about this accusation. It's unclear if the accusation was true or false, but Abner makes it sound like Ishbosheth was out of his mind to even think of accusing Abner with that kind of accusation, and it causes Abner to turn away from Ishbosheth and from his long-standing loyalty to Saul's house. Now, the key part here is that Abner is the one who made Ishbosheth king. Abner was the most powerful man in, ha- in Saul's house. It was Abner who had made Ishbosheth king over the northern tribes, and now Abner realizes that his loyalty to Saul's house, his efforts to make Ishbosheth king, all that did not turn out well in the end. His plans backfired against him. So he promises to turn his loyalty to David and to transfer the kingdom to David. What's amazing here is that David has nothing to do with this change in Abner's loyalty. God worked these events out so that Abner's strong loyalty to Saul's house would wean off of him and shift towards the king that God had promised. So Abner sends word to David and initiates a covenant with David. Now this is where Bible interpreters interpret this story differently. Some view Abner suspiciously and his motivations suspiciously, just like Joab does. Um, Others don't go into that into those thoughts of deciding whether or not Abner truly, genuinely turned his heart towards David or whether he was just an opportunist who tried to just seek his own agenda and do his own game. And if he couldn't do it with Ishbosheth, he's going to do it with David. That's a, somewhat of a suspicious read of Abner here. We don't know. The reality is the narrator could have told us Abner's motivations, but he doesn't. We'll see that the narrator will tell us Joab's motivations to make sure we have the right interpretation of why Joab acted the way he did. Here, we just don't know what was Abner's heart motivation if he generally turned towards David or it was mere pretense. What is clear is that David will think very highly of Abner. So David's response, uh, perhaps a good guide for us to say, perhaps Abner actually genuinely turned towards David. So he sends David a message, tells him, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And uh, David accepts the offer on a condition to bring Michael to him. 
and the narrator makes it very clear that Michael is Saul's daughter. It's unclear why David made this request, especially since Michael had been taken away from David and given to another man in marriage. That alone is a very messy detail. Saul did that with Michael against David's will. Perhaps David did not know these details. But this request on David's side was perhaps his way of showing that he is not opposed to Saul's house. The opposition between Saul's house and David's house did not come from David. Perhaps this was David's way of endearing himself to the house of Saul by being reunited with Saul's daughter. Or perhaps it was David's way of showing that Saul's house had acted wrongly against David in pursuing him and in taking his wife away from him. And now David rightly wants back what rightly belonged to him. Well, Abner uh, complies and Ishbosheth complies with David's request, and this covenant making business is moving forward. Abner convinces all Israel to turn their loyalty to David. He, uh, he not only changed his own loyalty away from Saul's house to David's house, but he goes around on this campaign talking to all the elders of Israel to convince them to join David's reign. And, and his summary of his, uh, his elevator pitch to convince them to join David, that summary is, is given for us in verses 17 and 18. For some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner knew the promise of God about David. Up until recently, he had not followed that promise of God. He had acted against this promise. He had been the one who had instigated the northern tribes to set up their own king. But now he had embraced this promise and he's going around telling the elders of Israel, you need to know about this promise and you need to obey this promise. As one Bible teacher put it beautifully, Abner here is like the evangelist of the Old Testament. Telling the northern tribes who is the rightful king over them and trying to convince them to join his reign. Interestingly, in this campaign that Abner does, he, the narrator tells us of one specific tribe that he goes to discuss this business with, and that's a tribe of Benjamin. Why Benjamin? Well, because Benjamin was Saul's tribe. Saul was from Benjamin. It's as if the author is saying, Abner is doing his due diligence to go to all the tribes, including and paying careful attention to the tribe of Benjamin and to secure, to convince them that they too need to come under the reign of David. Oh, friends, Abner is a powerful opponent who not only used to rebel against David, but caused all Israel to rebel against David when he, was, when he had installed an alternate king. And now he is calling all Israel to join David's reign. So after, after Abner does all this, He goes to David and is informing him of Israel's willingness to embrace David as king. And David welcomes Abner. 
throws a feast for him. And then David sends Abner in peace to bring about all Israel to him and make a covenant with David. Three times in this, at the end of this, this dialogue between Abner and David, three times the narrator tells us that David sent Abner in peace. The most important change at this point in the story is the change that Abner experienced to be at peace with a king against whom he once rebelled and rejected. Abner had changed his lord and king. Up until now, he was the engine fueling the war between these two houses. But now, he is embracing God's promised king. Friends, this is what is required of all of us as well. To turn away from the wrong masters we have set up over ourselves and to embrace the king that God had promised to use for our rescue. Uh, this, is, this is a pattern, if we may see, of what God does in calling people to himself. And this pattern is reiterated again in the New Testament. Books like Colossians 1 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friends, the story here is to see a guy who used to be the, the fuel for the war and the conflict with King David now being at peace with a king. Friends, are there masters, king figures in your life that you must turn away from and instead turn to King Jesus? Those masters or kings will eventually disappoint you. They will turn against you. Why would you not trust the one king that has promised to give you peace, who would save you. Well, all this sounds great until we read the rest of this chapter. All seems to go well until David's commander hears of this development. And we see here a powerful servant causes a major setback. This is the last scene in the story. A powerful servant causes a major setback. The story of Abner's governor with David is not received well by everyone, particularly by Joab, the commander of David's armies. Joab interprets Abner's visit in a very suspicious way, claiming that Abner's motivations were not genuine, but that Abner came to deceive David, to come as a spy, trying to turn against David. So Joab not only re rebuked David for being naive in how he interpreted Abner's motivations, but warned David that Abner is a threat to David's reign. So Joab takes matters in his own hands. He acts behind David's back, sends after Abner to come back to Hebron, and uh, when Abner is back in the gate at Hebron, Joab kills him. Now the narrator tells us the true motivation in Abner's heart. We must pay careful attention to the narrator who always gives us clues how we should interpret these stories. In this case, the narrator tells us, look at verse 27, at the end of verse 27, what motivated Joab was not securing the peace of King David. It was not to secure the safety of David's regime. Verse 27, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died 
for the blood of Asahel, his brother. And just that we get this again, the narrator will repeat this motive in verse 30. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Job's violence and murder escalates when we remember that Abner had just entered into covenant with David. David had promised Abner peace and protection. And now his death throws a deep shadow on King David and the kind of reign he has. To the northern tribes, Joab's actions made it look like this was David's hand. But it was not. This is not how David would treat those who come into covenant with him. And yet it would appear that David is not the man of his word to really bring safety and protection to the people who enter into covenant with him. This is a major setback that Joab creates to David and his reign to actually cast a dark shadow over the safety and protection that King David is promising and yet not able to deliver. Well, friends, isn't this often how Satan would, sh would cast a dark shadow over the reign of Jesus to make you believe that you will not be safe with King Jesus? that he cannot rescue, that you, it is not worth giving your loyalty to him. To the onlookers, especially the northern tribes, as they are in this journey of being convinced, should we submit to David to embrace him as king, this setback communicates a message, he's not a safe king. He's not a king who will keep his word. We just need to go with our king because he's not worth following. So Joab's action here puts a dark, deep, dark shadow over the kind of reign David wants to emulate. So for the remainder of this chapter, we see how David is going out of his way to make sure, and the narrator goes out of his way to make sure we understand what Joab did is not what David's reign is about. So David, in verses 28 and 29, curses Joab, the curse over Joab's house is more painful than any immediate murder David could have executed on Joab. The pain of this curse will follow Joab's offspring for generations to come after him. David also led the people in public mourning. Just as he led the people of Judah to mourn over Saul and Jonathan, David here leads his people to mourn over Abner. He even creates a song of lament for Abner. Verses 33 and 34. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. Clearly here, Joab is in the category of the wicked. What a strange act to mourn for one who had rebelled against you and had installed a separate king. To mourn publicly and deeply for such a man? Why? And also, David all gives, an Ab gives Abner a great epithet at the end of the chapter. The king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man had fallen this day in Israel? Why would David call Abner by such titles? Isn't this the man who turned against him and installed an alternate king? 
in competition to David. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. But he had turned his loyalty away from his wrong direction towards David, towards a rightful king. Abner was now no longer defined by his past sinful rebellion. David declared him a righteous man, even though his past was far from deserving such descriptions. This is what the king of, of kings does whenever men and women who have rebelled against him and used to live their lives according to their own wisdom, setting up their own kings over their lives. This is what happens when they turn to the rightful king. They are received. They are welcomed. They are honored. The people of Israel get convinced that David was not involved in the murder of Abner. David's reputation was, not, was now uh, absolved uh, because of the setback that Joab's sin caused. David's reign was in danger of being misrepresented, but the people of Israel learned their lesson. In this text, we see that the people of Israel realize David is, after all, a safe king to join. And the words of David at the end of the chapter tell the point which this messy, complicated story points to. David says in verse 39, And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Here David references that though he had been in authority of a king, he is showing that authority not in one's power to take personal revenge, but he shows his authority, expresses it through a gentle action. Joab, even though he had been close, close to the king and in the service of the king, acted in opposite direction from the heart of the king. Joab was in deep, out of sync with David's heart and represent, misrepresented David's reign. And here's an important lesson for us. There are times, many times, when the servants of God's kingdom do not act in a way that reflects the king's heart. You and I may be in the king's service and yet op act opposite of what the king's heart is about. And when we do that, we deeply, deeply misrepresent what the kingdom of God is about. We're called to act on behalf of the king, but often we represent ourselves as carrying the king's business, but in reality we harbor sinful motivations, and thus we act out of personal hurtfulness and act sinfully against others and cause others more hurt. Not murder, but other sinful ways in which we have acted, particularly when we seek to take revenge for the hurt that others have caused us. We may not murder someone physically, but we may slander them. We may think of them so lowly that in our hearts we murder them. This chapter has lots of complicated and messy details, but the contrast between David and Joab in how David treated Abner and how David treated Joab as a result of this conflict speaks volumes about the heart of God's king. He is gentle with those who turn to him. 
he will receive those who turn to him. He will embrace and honor all those who want to enter into covenant with him. But those who act in his service, who feel like they're doing the, the king's business, who act on, their, on the king's side, but actually, in reality, they act out of their own selfish, prideful, revengeful, sinful motivations, and bring dishonor to the king and his kingdom, the king has no words of honor to say, only curse and declaring that the Lord will repay evildoers for their wickedness, even though they may be in the king's service. This is a caution for us. This is a caution for all of us, whether we are close feeling like we're part of the king's army and king's team and king's family and acting on, on behalf of the king, or we feel that we're far from him. I wonder which of these two characters might describe you today, being like an Abner who returns to God's promised king, or like Joab who, threw the, who thought he was in the king's business and service but actually acted opposite from the king. This story that's complicated and messy, shows us that God is actually carrying out and continuing to unfold his kingdom, even through complicated and messy characters. God's grace, working through flawed characters, continue to tell the story of his redemption. The question is, on which side, which way are you today? Are there people against whom you are responding sinfully, poorly? Because in your own heart, you still harbor bitterness, anger, revenge. You can be a Christian and your heart to be caught by these feelings. Watch out. Be careful. The king's heart and the king's business is a heart of gentleness to those who would come to him. So come to him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would ingrain in our hearts and minds your grace that is undeserving to all of us and to any of us. We thank you that you work your power, a power of your kingdom, a power of your reign, even through messy characters, through flawed characters that we have seen today. Father, we thank you that you have promised a king in whom there is no flaw, a king who will never disappoint us, no matter what we experience. Thank you that through David and the story of his kingdom, you point us to Jesus. Father, we pray that our hearts would embrace the king you have promised for us, so that our hearts may be secure and safe. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.